You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A new PowerShell remote access tool targets a U.S. defense contractor. Current Russian cyber operations against Ukraine are honing in on espionage. CISA and its partners have released a joint guide to securing remote access software. A bug has been reported in Visual Studio's UI. Awais Rashid from University of Bristol discusses privacy in health apps. Our guest is Jim Lippi of SAS Alerts with insights on software-as-a-service application security. And what are the disconnects between cybersecurity and the legal profession? I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. PowerDrop is a new malicious PowerShell script discovered by researchers at AdLumen to have infected machines at an unspecified U.S. aerospace defense contractor. The malware uses a combination of Windows PowerShell script and Windows management instrumentation to create a new remote access trojan. The researchers write that what separates this malware from others is the fact that it is novel. That is, other code like this hasn't been witnessed before. The researchers say that it straddles the line between a basic off-the-shelf threat and the advanced tactics used by advanced persistent threat groups. Though attribution remains inconclusive, AdLumen assesses that based on the target and living-off-the-land tactics, it's likely that the threat actors are operating on behalf of a nation-state. Currently, it's unknown whether this incident is part of a larger campaign targeting multiple organizations. CERT UA warned Monday of a Russian cyber campaign that prospects government and media targets for the purpose of data collection. It uses Lone Page Malware, a PowerShell script, to stage information stealers and keyloggers in its targets. The campaign, which has been active in the second half of last year, is consistent with recent Russian cyber operations in that its goal is espionage as opposed to either influence or sabotage. CISA, the FBI, the MSISAC, and the Israel National Cyber Directorate 
have released a joint guide to securing remote access software. The guide centers around detecting and preventing the use of legitimate remote access software and common exploits that could be used against an organization. One of the particular concerns about this software is that it is used in normal IT tasks. This allows the remote access tools to be exploited by threat actors who typically remain undetected by antivirus tools or by endpoint detection and response defenses. Abusing remote access software doesn't require a threat actor to create a new capability. CISA explains in the guide that remote access software solves the issue of creating and utilizing custom malware for malicious actors and that the way remote access products are legitimately used by network administrators is similar to how malicious rats are used by threat actors. The guide recommends, among other things, that organizations create a baseline of their normal activity and begin monitoring for unusual spikes indicative of a compromise. For prevention and mitigation of this threat, the guide strongly encourages organizations to implement zero-trust solutions whenever and wherever possible. Adding safeguards that prevent users from accessing a large number of machines in a short amount of time can also mitigate risk. Researchers at Veronis discovered a UI bug within Microsoft Visual Studio's extension installer that allows a hacker to spoof an extension signature and effectively impersonate any publisher. The flaw can be exploited by opening the v6 file as a zip file and adding new characters to the extension name, which will prevent a digital signature warning from popping up in the installation prompt. The threat actor can then add a phony digital signature label at the beginning of the file name. Microsoft fixed this flaw in April, and users are advised to ensure Visual Studio is up to date. And finally, the International Legal Technology Association, in partnership with the Conversant Group, has released a joint research report detailing the disconnects between cybersecurity and legal personnel and practices. The survey benchmarks the cyber practices of law firms worldwide. Law firms are said to be an ideal target for malicious actors between the storage of extremely sensitive business, civil, criminal, and personal data of clients and the potential financial payoff for the hackers. Due to the sensitive nature of the data that can be lifted, law firms are said to be significantly more inclined to give in to the demands of a threat actor. As of the end of 2021, the report shares that almost a third of law firms saw a breach and 36% reported the past presence of malware. A surprisingly low number of law firms, just over 15%, saw gaps in their cybersecurity protections despite being a common target. The research shows a significantly more elevated number than that. About three-quarters of those surveyed also believe they had a leg up on others in their industry in terms of cyber protections, though the researchers have found this to be unlikely. 65% of respondents also note the presence of lateral movement defenses, though the researchers have found the presence of only two offerings in the market that include those capabilities, meaning that the understanding by the firms of what true lateral movement defenses are may be murky at best. So, counselors, there may be some overconfidence here. Beef up your cyber protections, or you may find yourself embroiled in legal battles on your own time. Coming up 
Coming up after the break, Awais Rashid from University of Bristol discusses privacy in health apps. Our guest is Jim Lippy of SAS Alerts with insights on software as a service application security. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Jim Lippy is CEO of cybersecurity firm SAS Alerts, who recently released the firm's annual cybersecurity report. The research specifically looks at attack attempts on small businesses throughout the year. 32% of small and medium-sized businesses today are using MFA, multi-factor authentication, which is consistent with what CISA sites in terms of what is going on in the enterprise, they say it's 30%. So that is a very low number, both of those, 30 and 32% respectively, based on how important we know MFA is in terms of mitigating risk. So that was one finding that we, we found pretty interesting. Another was, you know, last year, the number one attacker, if you will, um, in terms of countries that were coming after small, medium-sized businesses around the world was Russia. You know, that was in the 2022 report. Hmm. What we found in 2023, or the, the findings from this past year based on the Ukrainian conflict, is that those attacks from Russia came way down. And now the number one, from this past year, the number one threat actor country, if you will, is China. 
they're trying to get into small and medium-sized businesses the most. And I want to be very clear about the fact that this isn't necessarily nation-state type attacks, right? But these are where the attacks on small and medium-sized businesses are emanating. And what are we talking about in terms of volume here that, that you all are tracking? Yeah, so we see approximately 50,000 brute force attacks every single day on about 7,500 small businesses that we monitor. Do you have a sense for what the success rate is? It's consistent with what we see in, in terms of you know overall averages, but it's about 1%. Still a big number. It's a big number when you consider the volume. Yeah. I know another thing that you all track on the report here is phishing attacks. What are you all seeing there? They're definitely on the rise. Phishing attacks, social engineering, there's so much information out there right now on the net that it's really easy at this point for threat actors to gain information that's publicly available and then use that information in phishing campaigns and social engineering campaigns to trick unsuspecting end users into sharing information they should not be sharing. And then obviously leveraging that to gain access to you know, credentials and, and then down the line into the environments and then they move laterally from there. We've seen significant, you know, significant uptick in successful attacks recently, even in the, in the last few months since we released the report from last year's findings. Well, based on the information that you all have gathered here, what are your recommendations then for organizations to best protect themselves? Number one, everyone should be using MFA. Number two, you should be monitoring all of these SaaS applications on an ongoing basis for unusual behavior. We're Dave, we're in a needle in a haystack game here. 98% of all of the security events that these applications throw off every single day are completely harmless. It's the 2% that we need to worry about, and they can be difficult to find. You know, For instance, one of our partners in the Midwest recently uncovered a Chinese spy ring. It was internal to a company. They never would have known that this was going on if they didn't if they were not monitoring the user behavior associated with Office 365. This employee was sharing very sensitive information out of OneDrive and SharePoint, sent to two specific IP addresses in China. Once it was downloaded on the other side, it was deleted to essentially destroy the evidence. What they didn't realize was that our software actually captures that activity. And it was that case has been handed over to the authorities. But that is something that if you're not monitoring for it, if you're not looking for it, you're never going to know it. So being more vigilant and monitoring that level of activity is really, really important on an ongoing basis. Making sure that these applications are configured to best practice initially, and then again, monitoring those changes on a go-forward basis, really, really important. And then just overall, just being more vigilant in general. You know, there's a lot of best practices that people generally don't follow. You know, instead of a password, have a passphrase. 
you know, um, use password managers. There's a number of best practices from a general perspective people should be following to, to mitigate their risk. That's Jim Lippy from SAS Alerts. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He is director of the National Research Center on Privacy, Harm Reduction, and Adversarial Influence Online at University of Bristol. Uh, Dr. Rashid, always a pleasure to welcome you back to the show. I think like a lot of folks, uh, I have taken full advantage of the various apps on my mobile device. Uh, And you wanted to address today some of those health apps and some of the privacy concerns that you and your colleagues have been looking into. What can you share with us today? So the app market uh, has, of course, exploded for a while now, but even more so, uh, especially, I, I would expect, in some part due to, due to the pandemic, for sure, personal health is very much on everyone's, on everyone's mind, uh, be it from, uh, you know, apps that allow you to track your exercise or, uh, you know, physical activity to also apps that provide support for mental health and well-being. But that naturally begs the question as to what information these apps collect, what are their data privacy practices, and are the permissions that are being collected, uh, are they suitable for the task, for the task at hand? So this is a, there are a number of pieces of work that we've been doing. So for example, we did an analysis of uh, 27 top ranked uh, mental health apps from the uh, Google Play Store, and we uh, noted, which which has been a finding elsewhere in in the field as well, that often you know unnecessary permissions are are requested, which are not necessarily uh, required for the app to provide its functionality. We also found other issues, for example, insecure cryptographic implementations. We also found that, for example, uh, personal data and and credentials were actually uh, being leaked. Uh, through logs and web requests. And this is not, the latter is not necessarily um, an adversarial thing. It's just really, you know, implementation practices uh, in itself. So, and in other cases, for example, we've also looked at developers, for example, using, uh, asking for permissions, especially linked to, for example, um, fitness-related applications. And again, there are interesting issues there because often certain permissions are very complicated and developers don't fully understand them. So they would request these permissions when they are not necessarily required for the uh, for the task at hand. So this creates an interesting problem in itself that we are increasingly reliant on these these apps. We utilize them a lot, but there there are uh, significant privacy considerations around the data that has been collected. Yeah, we've seen some reports lately. Um really sobering reports of some of these apps. I've seen some trying to uh, help people with things like addiction, but then sharing private information about uh, the users for for advertising. Seems to me like there's a real betrayal of trust here. How do we come at that? How, how, do, we, how do we bridge that gap? So that's that's really exactly where the problem lies, right? Because it's who are the third parties with whom the data is being shared? Who are the advertisers potentially with whom the data is shared? And there are multiple multiple issues here. Uh, I think one is 
as to what the user is actually signing up to in, in the first instance. And we all know the problems with very, very complicated privacy policies, which are often presented in legal jargon and so on. But increasingly, for example, on both the Apple iOS and and uh, on Android, uh, you have uh, you know permissions, uh, dynamic permissions, where the app as you install it or as you utilize it asks you to grant particular permissions or deny those particular permissions. However, a lot of the times users are not really very very clear as to whether these permissions are necessarily needed. Okay, uh, and then if the data is being collected, what is it being used for? Transparency is very, very important. How do we provide it is much harder. So transparency can be provided, or we can claim that we provide transparency through very complicated privacy policies, and we will agree that's not necessarily uh, a good way of doing it. We can also say, well, we provide transparency through the permissions, uh, asking for permissions as they are needed, which is great. However, if as a user, I don't really understand what that permission is asking me to do, it may or may not be needed. And what are the ramifications for that? And I think there is a sort of a bigger challenge here as to how do we actually communicate to users what is it that the app is asking for and what are the implications? And that is uh, that is non-trivial. Do you suppose that perhaps it's time to increase the, the regulatory burden on some of these companies? I mean, to, to say that, um, listen, you know, we gave you a shot at self-regulating yourselves and that hasn't exactly gone very well. Uh, so we're going to put some rules in place here. Yeah, so this is a live debate. This is a live debate in the UK. So for instance, uh, there is the online harms bill that is going through parliament at the moment that is uh, talking about the uh, responsibility that sits on uh, you know large service providers, for example, as to what happens on their platforms and by virtue of that through through the apps that they are uh, that they are also also providing. Uh, there is also other calls for, for example, you know, voluntary codes of codes of practice uh, around around making making things clear. Regulation does have a have a place, uh, but the challenge with regulation always tends to be is that it responds to what's the here and now, and things mm. in the technology sector suddenly move very very fast. Uh, and I think it's a it's a question of how do we actually provide a, a regulatory environment which actually responds to those kind of changing technological landscapes. And, and that in itself is, again, a real challenge. But the biggest thing is evidence and making policy on the basis of evidence uh, in itself. And that is something certainly that we do within the reprint center, of which I'm, a, I'm the director, that we, we aim to provide uh, evidence on the basis of which, for example, some of the debates that are uh, around the online harms bill in the UK are, are being shaped. But I would also emphasize the role here isn't for just one party. Regulators have a role to play. Organizations who are building these apps, they have a role to play. Uh, Developers who are, you know, actually doing the work on the ground, they have a role to play. Platform providers have a role to play. For example, Google, Apple, you know, those, those kind of organizations. And of course, we we cannot say that users do have no role to play because as, as a user, you know, I want to be able to decide what information I give. But at the moment, that balance isn't there in the sense that a lot of the times users feel that they either have to give all the permissions or they don't really know and they're unsure and they give all the permissions or they often have this feeling of helplessness. They go, well, I have to because I want to use the service, for example, or use the app. And, and that balance isn't right. So we have to make sure that all these different stakeholders come together and, and do something about it. 
All right. Well, interesting work uh, you all are doing there on this. Dr. Weiss Rashid, thanks so much for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by Rachel Gelfin. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.